to um, Judges chapter 13. Our message on God and government today is called The Absurdity of Autonomy. The Absurdity of Autonomy. And yes, I'm asking you to learn some words maybe that you don't know. Absurd means it doesn't make any sense. It's absurd. Autonomy is a big word, and let's talk about what it means. What is autonomy? Well, this is the concise Oxford Dictionary of it. It means, basically, the possession or right of self-government, says today's dictionary. Freedom of action, autonomy. I'm free to do what I want. Just leave me alone and let me do what I want. Libertarian you know, thinking. The origin, they say, is from the 17th century in English, meaning 1600s, King James time. But it's really a Greek word, autos and namos. Autos is self and namos is law. And that's where this word got jammed together in English. It's a self-rule. Or to be a law unto oneself. And as Christians, with a good, sound Christian worldview from Genesis 1 through Revelation, you and I know that sounds like a problem for fallen humans to be under self-law. That's the Oxford English Dictionary. An older definition from Webster in 1828, he starts with the derivation. He says it's Greek. It's autos and namos. It's self and law. And in Greek, um, it's from Greek, and he says this word is rarely used. Thank you, Webster, in 1828. We don't use this word in American English is what Dr. Webster is saying. Why would he say that? It's not part of our discussion, self-rule. We don't really think this way. It's not really part of our worldview. It's possibly a conclusion one would draw. Autonomy is the goal of the rebellious spirit of every human being. I don't want God to be in control. I want to be in control. I like how Webster says, this word is rarely used. That's, now, that's an old dictionary. They're going to tell you this is the usage in our time. And, and if, you read, if you read Webster 1828, you can read the Constitution and all that. It signifies the power right of self-government, whether in a city which elects its own magistrates and makes its own laws, or in an individual who lives according to his own will. And Dr. Webster did not uh, put the text in blue. I did that. And he did not bold it. I did that. But it's what I wanted to point out. This is what we mean by autonomy. Christians use this in a negative sense. We don't use this in a positive sense, that we're a law unto ourselves. We use it in a negative sense that God is the lawgiver and we're always consistently, constantly dependent upon him. So let's talk about the problem of independence. If you'll sit back and relax, we'll get to Samson in Judges 13. But first, I want to give you some thoughts that we concluded from last time. Independence from God, I'm saying, is an absurdity. And it comes whether you're looking in the physical, moral, spiritual realm. It's absurd. The physical universe depends on God holding us together. And so that's the, the baseline as we start. It's, it's absurdity, but it's what we're all after. We have, secondly, as our very continued existence, we have our very continued existence from God's provision as the sovereign, as the one who has all the power. Thirdly, yet yeah, yeah, by design, we have the capacity to choose for or against God's way. And so this is the challenge of being a human, and it's the challenge of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the challenge of every moment of your life and mine. I have the freedom to say yes or no to God. That's the, that's the whole deal. You have the capacity to choose, and it's a divine thing. And 
theologians and philosophers debate about where this works. And the Reformed people want to say, yeah, humans are free to sin. And, but, but the point is, sin is the disobedience of God, and we are free as human beings. And this side of, the, of, the, of salvation, faith in uh, trusting in Christ as our Savior, we're free to serve, too, to serve our Creator. And so it's a choice. Fourth, sin entered the human race when our parents attempted independent exercise of God-given volition. They weren't sinners, but they did enter into sin through an independent exercise of God-given volition. You had revelation from God, don't eat from the tree, it'll kill you. You had a decision, do I eat from it or don't I? And so if you make your decision independent of the revelation, you end up with the fall. Fifth, we rule in the free capacity of our volition, the capacity to choose right or wrong, but we do not have the freedom to say what the right choice is. We are not the lawmaker. We don't decide what is right and wrong. We hear from God's revelation what the law is, what right and wrong is, and then we make our decisions on the basis of that or in rejection of that. You can never separate human function and in God's design from God's revelation. And that's, again, the legislative function. You and I are executives. We make choices. The question is, are we enforcing the law, as it were? Are we doing the executive function of this is what God said, so now this is the choice that I make on that basis. Recently speaking with someone about uh, interaction with police officers. The police uh, are law enforcement, not lawmakers. They're law enforcement officers. So they're supposed to know what? The law. And when they don't know the law or they're fuzzy on something that's a little bit, a little bit peripheral to the normal experience, you know, that can, be a, it can become a challenge where they say, well, I'm going to enforce this. You say, well, actually, that's against the law. And, and they say, well, I don't know it that way. I'm not sure. And then they call, or this, but they call the higher guy and say, uh, this is what this guy's saying about the law. And then someone checks and says, yeah, that was, you know, you were sick that day in class or whatever. That is the law. And then they have to enforce it. They're, they're constrained. They're supposed to be constrained by their oath to enforce the law. Which really puts the power in whom? In whom? It's in the lawmaker. It's in the people legislating. Oh, Connecticut. Okay. Seventh. Man in his delusion, that's from sin, attempts to craft his own morality, his own moral obligations. We try to say this is what I think is right. And we do it in sin apart from God's revelation. When God says, everybody look at me, this is what is right. God says, and that is really important for you to master, that God says what's right, and then you have to choose for or against what he said. That's the only way human beings operate. We all do it. We are all under obligation from God for his revelation, from creation, from the coming of Christ, from the revelation of God through the proclamation of the gospel by the church in our day. Every human being is under obligation under one of these aspects of, of increasing revelation. And so every one of us is making choices where God has said, and we're either saying yes with what he said or no. And you can say, wait a second, no, no, no. So-and-so out in the bush doesn't have revelation. No, they have revelation from creation in Genesis 1. They do have revelation, but they're rejecting the rest of it. Okay. And so they're making their moral choices separate from God's revelation on the specifics of that moral choice in ignorance. But there's a prior rejection of revelation. And that's the thing. Everybody in the world, in human history, we are all, all of us making our choices. Kids in school, 
people at work, everybody in every aspect of life, you're making rulership decisions over what's been entrusted to you, even if it's just your sneakers. You're making decisions. And the question is, are you making the decisions in accord with what God has said? But God, number eight, is the creator, owner, sovereign. He has established the moral framework as a reflection of his inherent nature. And this is why he's the only one who can say, it's right because I say so. He's the only one who can say moral righteousness is a product of my declaration because it's coming out of his moral, personal excellence of character and his own integrity and his own righteousness. That's so important to get. We are not inherently righteous. We're righteous by derivation of our connection to him. So ninth, we cannot independently determine what is right, as Cain in Genesis chapter 4 tried to do. Well, I thought we should just give him vegetables. Well, that's great. You thought that, but it's actually not great because you're wrong. He doesn't want vegetables. He wants a blood sacrifice. And this is what we do. We are self-righteous, and it's, it's, it's crazy, but we're self-righteous in our own assessments against God with what he said. And that's the next step, I think, in, in our decline as a, as a human race is that we reject God's revelation, and then we make our search of what righteousness would be. We hear of God's revelation, and then we say, well, that's not right. <laughs> and we become God in our own thinking. Tenth, we must seek God's revelation of himself and his idea of what is right. That is what we're doing constantly. Then we have the, capa- the capability of ruling in accordance with his moral righteousness. Hopefully you can see that's really tight. It's all really tight the way that works. I've got choices to make. God set it up that way. Well, I don't want the choices. Where are we going to eat? Wherever you want to eat. I don't want to make a choice. Well, what about this place? No, I don't want to go there. So when your wife says, where do you want to eat? And you say, I don't care. And she says, well, I mean, pick some place. And you say, uh, what about this place? She does want to make choices. She just wants to be given the whole realm of options and then choose the one or none of them that occur to her And uh, as you present the options. So you're the marquee. It's a game that we play in our culture. First world problems. I've talked a lot about volition and the reflection of God's decision making and he has the right to decide or authority. I've talked a lot about that in this study and I want to make sure you understand I'm not equating God's right to choose with his sovereignty. I'm saying it's a portion of his sovereignty. God makes things happen whether uh, we go along with him or not. He is sovereign and I want to bring that out. When we say God wills something in the New Testament, the lema, fellow, this word, this word group means God wants something. It's his desire. It's his desire. Not his eternal prior decree, which does exist. It's what he wants. And I'm not here to resolve those two things. Because you could, you could say, well, the sovereign gets whatever he wants. And I, I would say there are some things it seems that it says God wants that don't happen. God isn't willing that any should perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. I don't like any of the reconciliations people have made to bring that to, to shore on Second Peter 3. Oh, he means all the elect. I, I don't like that. I just let it be a problem for me. It's called, a, it's called antinomy. I'm not sure how it works. But I believe that God is sovereign. This is not precisely the same as God's sovereign decree. I hope you understand when we talk about authority. God accomplishing his objectives with man's free choices for and against him is a matter of biblical revelation. He gets his way whether we are willing participants or not. And I'll show you that in Samson in just a moment. He gets his way whether you and I choose for God's way or not. And our choices don't contramand God's sovereignty. But he is dealing with us in time in a condescending, godly condescension where he says, here's what I want you to do. He brings the animals before the man and says, whatever you name it, that's its name. 
Did God know in eternity past what Adam would name the animals? He absolutely did. Did he choose that beforehand? If you want to say he decreed and he incorporated man's will that he knew, his choices, into God's decree, then that, that seems to be what happened. In other words, you're not in a puppet show with, all the, with everything already written that you're not making real choices. The infinite, eternal God that you're dealing with is dealing with you in time with real choices. And yet, everything he wants to happen is going to happen in the sense of his uh, eternal decree. This is what people have called the permissive and the directive will of God. And you can make all kinds of language to describe it, but I'm saying there's a problem in the Bible that God just leaves with us where we, are we really making free choices? We are. Is God really sovereign where he is really weaving the whole thing together to get his objectives? He is, and that's, those are both true. And the difference between us and God is the explanation. We're finite beings making decisions in time, and God is an infinite, eternal being. And so you can't really put his choices or desires on par with ours. So my point is that God's authority or right to decide is only part of the doctrine of sovereignty, and the mystery of the decrees of God and their interface with man's delegated responsibility cannot be resolved within the limitations of human knowledge and reason. And I've been told by modified Calvinists that that's a modified Calvinist position. But I didn't get this from John Calvin, so I don't know anything about that. This just seems to be what the Bible is teaching. All right, shall we study a case of attempted autonomy in Judges chapter 13? Let's do it. Judges 13, where would I find Judges? After Joshua, and where would I find Joshua? After Genesis through Deuteronomy. So we're early in Israel's history, and you know the, door, the, the deal with the Judges, I hope you know. There is a problem in Israel in the time of the Judges, 400 years of history covered by this portion of Scripture. They've partially conquered the land under God's direction. And the theme of the book of Judges is that everyone did whatever was right in his own eyes. It's national autonomy. God said no idols in Exodus 20, and by Exodus 32, they're having um, an orgiastic phallic cult ceremony around an idol because they're not listening to God's revelation and so making their choices in accordance with it. When does God not want you to make idols? Well, up to, third, up to 40 days from now, for sure. But after the 40th day, I mean, Moses has been gone for a long time. We pretty much got to make idols now. No, he never wants you to make idols. It's always the wrong choice. All right. Let me outline it as we read it, and, uh, and let's do the narrative. It's Judges chapters 13 through 17. We can do this. Verses 1, verse 1, you have the setting of the story of Samson. It's another round of Israelite rebellion. A national divine discipline because of their idolatry. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. And in verses 2 through 5, you have this man, Manoah, and his wife introduced, were never told her name. But the story is about her. It focuses on her in the rest of the chapter, but we don't know her name. That's interesting. And she has instruction from the angel of the Lord. There was a certain man in Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall 
conceive and give birth to a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or beer. The strong drink is always fermented grain. Fermented fruit is wine. Fermented grain is we call beer. It has nothing to do with distillation of, of um, whiskey or something. No wine or beer, nor any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Number six, two through five, gives you the law God gave through Moses of the Nazarite. It's a person specially set apart to God in a ritualistic sense where there can be no fermentation, which is a reference to death. There can be no touching of unclean things, and we're not going to even trim their fingernails or cut their hair because the whole person is being set apart to the Lord for the period of the time of the vow of the Nazarite thing. Now, Nazarite wasn't for life by God's design. In number six, here God, the angel of the Lord, says, for life from the womb. And if you're wondering about what does from the womb mean in the Bible, does that mean from outside the womb when he's born? What does that mean when he's three and can believe? What does it mean from the womb? It means from the time of the womb so that she in her food intake, she's not supposed to eat fermented. She can't do it because he's, he's a Nazarite. He's set apart to Yahweh from the womb. So it's, it's a temporal use of this prepositional phrase, which shouldn't be challenging, but for some reason it is. So the angel of the Lord, we already know this person. He is Yahweh in an angelic manifestation, which we call a theophany. And in this case, and I think in all cases, a Christophany. This is the second person of the Trinity. I'll just summarize for you what we believe about this angel of the Lord. It's the second person of the Trinity revealing God's will in the form of an angel, which to the people looks like a man. And, it, and it's called the Malach, I don't know, the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. And sometimes, as we can prove to you in various places, the Lord, it says, and the angel of the Lord said, and then the other guy says something, and then the angel of the Lord speaks again, but it just says, and Yahweh said. Because the angel of the Lord is the Lord in an angelic manifestation. And we begin to believe the second Trinity, person of the Trinity is the revealed person um, through the Old and New Testaments. So verses 6 through 7 Manoah's, now this is really important on the question of autonomy and revelation. This is the part that we just read through and read through, but zoom in a little bit. Manoah and his, tells, Manoah's wife tells him what, most of what the angel said, but she leaves out part of the revelation. Remember what he said in verse 5. He'll be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. This is Judges 13. We're hundreds of years into this now. We've had Ehud. We've had um, uh, Deborah and Barak. We've had Jephthah. We've had the judges that God raised up to deliver the children of Israel. And we know it's a military job. We know that the judge is a ruler, but his rule is expressed especially in marshalling the military to kick the invaders out. And that's the nature of being the judge. So that's what the angel of the Lord said. He's going to begin to deliver God's people. But in verses 8 through 12, Manoah is going to ask the angel of the Lord what what he's going to be. What is his job? And this is the interesting part of the story. Manoah's wife tells him part, but she doesn't tell him the whole thing. In verse 7, behold, the angel said to me, Manoah says, um, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 6. Verse 6, Manoah's wife tells him part. 
The woman came and and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance uh, was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. So she's marveling at this person and describes him this way. But then in verse 7, But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. She's very interested in that because she's barren, and that's a horror in their culture in that day. And now you shall not drink wine and strong drink or beer, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So that was what she understood to be the message from the angel. And she left out a huge part of the angel's message. And that's going to be important if we're watching closely, because in verses 8 through 12, Manoah is going to ask the angel of the Lord, what is he going to do? What do you want us to do with him? And the angel of the Lord says, listen to your wife. Then Manoah entreated Yahweh and said, O Lord, O boss, O master, O Adonai, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. We need more uh, revelation on what to do with this stewardship you've given us. God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. See, this woman is being given agency. She is expected a certain level of competence in carefully listening to what the angel said and relaying that to her husband. There is an expectation God has for her, so the angel comes back to her because she didn't quite get across the finish line and communicating to her husband what we're doing because she doesn't quite apparently get it. And that's the point of Samson's life is he doesn't get it. He's not a willing participant in the works of God. He's being dragged by his heels into a soap opera that he's created for himself that God uses in his sovereignty to get the military objectives God wants. But he's not, he's not showing up for duty as a soldier. Yet he fights God's battles. What are we supposed to do with him? So he sent the angel back to his wife. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. So then Manoah rose and followed his wife. See, there's not much we have about these people, but it tells us that I don't know what Manoah did for a living. I don't know what he was doing when he wasn't with us. What's she in the field for? We don't know these things, but we do know that there's this thing where the angel went back to her. Manoah asked for more revelation. The angel goes back to his wife. What's the point? Oh, we got all revelation from our wives. No. No, when you're entrusted with, a, with, a, with revelation from God, take care of it. Do what you're, called, you're told to do with it. Be a good steward. Manoah rose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Which is an interesting thing for the second person of the Trinity in the form of an angel to say, is it not? Manoah said, Now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation. This is the second time Manoah has asked God, what are we supposed to train this boy to do? God already answered it when he first went to the woman and told her he's going to begin to deliver Israel. And that's the part that's so interesting in this back and forth. I have no understanding of what verse 8 through 12 is doing, unless it's pointing out that she received revelation that she did not pass on. Why didn't she pass it on? Well, she's barren and she's going to have a baby. That's, what's, that's important. I'm having a baby. She's excited. She's, uh, 
What, what, why, why didn't she pass this on? Because now I've got nutrition instructions. No wine, no beer, nothing uh, unkosher. We're, in the, we're, we're on the other side of God's revelation of kosher uh, law for Israel. So, so eat kosher, right? This baby's going to be a Nazarite set apart to God even from the womb. Okay, okay, I got this, I got this. I know what, not, not, but, but then what's he for? He's going to be the judge. He's going to be Ehud. He's going to be Barak. He's going to be Jephthah. He's going to be this judge that's going to, re, re, uh, going to save Israel from the Philistines. You're going to raise a soldier. And in the story of, of Samson, that's the most important thing. Not whether he had seven braids of hair, right? That his, he's a judge. He's the one that God is raising up to deliver Israel. And understand the judges, I think, are portraits of the nation, they're, a, a, they're like a cross-section of the faith of the people. These people are de- declining. It, when they recover, it's kind of a more of a partial recovery every time, and it's just a mess. All right, so verse 8 through 12, he asks again, what do you think the angel of the Lord tells him? He says, well, he's going to deliver Israel as the judge. He doesn't tell him. In verses 13 through 14, he just tells him what Manoah's wife first told him. It's, it's an amazing uh, little, little play here. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said, which makes you and me get our Bible scrolls. We're, we're reading a scroll written by this prophet who wrote Judges. We're going to scroll back to what he said first to the woman, right? Because we have it written down. It's a matter of record. And that's what we're supposed to do by the design of how this is written. Let the, let the woman pay attention to all that I told her. Boy, do we need to pay close attention to the revelation of God when we get it. And there's a thing here that's happening in verse 14. He doesn't give it again. He doesn't say it again. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink uh, wine or beer, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. He doesn't tell them the paragraph that this is the judge. He just skips it. And so... There's three ways now that the story has underscored that she missed this portion of God's revelation. The interesting thing is that when they have a chance to hear it again, he doesn't tell them again. Why? This is a riddle. Why does God not say it again? Because God is sovereign, and he's going to get his way anyway. And now we're going to watch this guy who's such a clown, such capability in God's power, with such irresponsibility with that stewardship. We're going to see a clown stumble his way through defeating the Philistines, not considering himself uh, God's instrument for this. This is going to be a man who's going to die asking God to strengthen him so that he can ultimately kill himself. And his whole ambition is to avenge himself upon his own enemies. So he's not a willing participant from the beginning of of the story in chapter 14 to the end of his life. He's not a willing participant in God's works. Verses 15 through 20, you have this miracle story, this miraculous vision they have of the angel where he reveals himself. And I'll summarize it. They offer him food because it's a visitor in their house. Come eat with us. I won't eat your food. What's your name? Why do you ask my name? You know it's a, it's, a, it's a miraculous thing. You know this is other. You're in an other situation here, Mano. You know this. But I'll tell you what, if you want make a burnt offering... To God, to the Lord, if you want, offer that. And he offers it, and as the flame of the burnt offering is going up, the angel of the Lord enters the flame and shoots heavenward. And then they know, oh, that was the angel of the Lord. That's the miracle vision they have uh, recorded in verses 15 through 20. 
Then they talk about it. They have an interesting conversation. And I'm the, and I'll just share transparently kind of fun. In our marriage, I'm the one that doesn't recount all the details of the story. I'm doing my best to kind of summarize. And, and she went, what, what exactly was said? Well, well, I don't remember. I was busy saying it. I wasn't hearing it. But this is what I think basically happened in the conversation. So very frustrating for, for, for Krista. And um, uh, in this case, Manoah's wife didn't remember all the details. But in verse 21, uh, sorry, verse yeah, 21. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. And then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah asked, said to his wife, we will surely die for we've seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would, have, he would not have accepted a burnt offering, a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. I believe that Manoah's wife is the brains of the organization. Based on all that I see in the story, she is the Deborah character because you have a declining civilization and the men are getting worse and they're getting less... Uh, they're becoming less and less good stewards of, of the three pounds of fatty material God put between our ears. Um, and, and so, oh, oh, we saw the Lord, we're going to die. Think about it. Think, think, Manoah, if he wanted to kill. No, she's not being disrespectful. But, you know, this is a tough thing. This is a really tough thing when, um, when the wife who has to submit and respond to her husband by God's design of woman and man, when a wife has to submit to a husband and she's, uh, two or three steps ahead of him. That's a very challenging thing um, to, to be involved in, and it happens, and I think you have it here in Manoah. But the woman gave birth to a son and named him Shimshon. And the child grew up, that's Samson, and the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadon between Zor and Eshtol. All right, so he's born. She names him something that looks like the son, Shemesh, Shimshon, and um, there's a Beth Shemesh down the street, and there's a sun cult, perhaps, but I don't think that's what it refers to, and there's a lot of challenge about this, but perhaps in the song of, of Deborah, there's a reference to the, the, the Lord and the, the strength of the Lord as the sun. All right. The name of Samson is a challenge to me, and uh, I've checked out various scholars, and I think that everybody's just basically doing their best, kind of throwing darts at a, at a, at a dartboard blindfolded. Uh, with what his name means. The unbelievers want to say, see, they're pagans. They don't believe in Yahweh. This has all been garbled together. And uh, they're really worshiping the sun god. And this is Hercules, who's the son of a god. And, and so it's the same story as Hercules. That's what the pagans want you to believe. So in verse 14, or chapter 14, in verses 1 through 4, it's a new story. And now we see Samson in action, and he's uh, of a marriageable age and wants a wife. And what are Israelites supposed to do? They're supposed to marry Israelites. They're believers, and they're supposed to marry believers. Are they supposed to marry unbelievers? No, they're supposed to marry believers. Why? Because God said, and he has a reason why he said, why does God want Israelites to marry believers? Because he wants believing Israelites to make next generation believers in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Because it's not about you. Really, it's not. It's about the people that are depending on you. And the people depending on you are your progeny. And nobody's more dependent on their parents, on anybody, than children on their parents. And we think of sex, for example, as something that is for me. I, it's a thing that God gave us to enjoy, and it is, and it's a blessing of marriage. But it's not just that, is it? It's the next generation. It's how people are made. 
And it's not just, well, we're kids and we just want to have fun. It's that this is life and death. And it's vital that we not mess with this because it's a blessing from God only in one particular channel in uh, the the sacred bond of marriage, God's institution. And that would be self-government in the realm of sex. But Samson is not thinking this way. He's thinking about what Samson likes. And so Samson chooses a wife, and this is one of the great moments in life where you see what a person's character is like. I don't care what God's word says. I care about how I feel. And that's the hormonal decision-making of Samson. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. What? No, Samson, that's not, that's not who we marry. No, nope, you go get her for me as a wife. You have to have your parents involved. The parents have to set this up. That's even in that culture, uh, even dealing with the Philistines and the Israelites. But the Philistines require this. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Now, when it said Philistine in verse 3 or 2, I might have said, Whoa, 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 that's not kosher. There's a problem. Hey, Nazarite, everything you do is supposed to be set apart to God. You can't, you can't take a wife of the Philistines because you're supposed to only be committed wholly to Yahweh. And he said, Only Israelite wives. And so they say, can't you marry a, a, an Israelite girl? They make an issue. The writer is going right there. Samson said to his father, despite the revelation that his parents quoted to him, they, they made their, their conscience is calibrated by God's word. They're saying this is a wrong choice based on the legislation we've gotten from God. Can't you do what God said and make your choice for him? See, but Samson's going to attempt autonomy. He says to their word about God's way, he says, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Yashar, she is right, appropriate, or symmetrical in my eyes. Par- paraphrase here, she looks good to me. Get her for me, uh, for she looks good to me. Maybe he's Manoah's son, right? Maybe he's a, a chip off the old block, and he's just not a thinker, right? But it's interesting that they present him with revelation from God, that God said only marry within our family, within the, 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 the commonwealth of Israel, and he blinked at them and said, uh, as though God doesn't exist, as though God's word doesn't exist, get her for me for she looks good to me. So what Samson just did was an attempted independence from God. He did an autonomous decision, as he thought, that God's word says this, there's a right and wrong to it, but I want her, she's the wrong choice, God says, but I want her, so I choose her, I'm going to insist. You can apply this in your lives right here in the church age, every believing young person, you are not supposed to marry a non-believer. 2 Corinthians 6.6 6 does not say you can't marry an unbeliever. It says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And the greatest yoking that there is, the most intimate uh, covenant bond there is between two human beings is marriage. In fact, your children are not called your flesh. They're not called one flesh with you. That's restricted language to marriage. It's a very important and uh, challenging and painful and horrible and wonderful institution God has made. It's horrible because of our sin and wonderful because of God's mercy. But Samson, see, this is the character. As you, why are we reading this? We're not reading this so that we'll know, oh, there was, a, there was a guy that wanted to get married. We're reading this so that we'll see God's presentation. It's a narrative revelation of man independent from God. 
And that's why the, there are many things that happen in Samson's life. Boy, do I want to see the origin story. I want to see him grow up and all the things, what was his character like. But here is the snapshot of his character. God's revelation says X, I choose Y, and my conscience doesn't blink. My conscience doesn't have a moment's consideration about the choice that I'm about to make. Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. She looks good to me. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. What? This was of the Lord, for he was seeking occasion against the Philistines. So what? This is of God? He's going to marry this woman outside of the the instructions of the Mosaic law? No. The sin that Samson is going to engage in is not what God wants for Samson. But the consequences that God's going to use that sin to bring about, which is really the destruction of the Philistines, is God's objective. And this is sovereignty versus God's authoritative right to make decisions where he tells us what right is, and then we need to submit ourselves to that decision. See, sovereignty is going to have its way, and that's part of the story. God is going to make Samson the destroyer of the Philistines, whether Samson does it in an organized way or in the middle of a soap opera, which is what he opts for. In verses 5 through 9, you have the lion, the woman, and the honey. And it starts with a lion and it ends with a lion. The story, this little portion of the story. And it's the, the, the go down and secure the wife story. Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. So apparently his parents are in the town and he's outside, uh, you know, finding lions. His parents don't know about it. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and this word salach, to come upon mightily, to break, it can mean to break or to break into, and it means that there is right in line. God is sovereign, and he's going to get hold of Samson. Samson's not a willing participant in the things of God. He doesn't care about God's revelation, but God is going to use him, so he gives him this influx of power by the Holy Spirit. The, and so this is a very different thing than what we're doing with the Spirit today. Willing participants in the plan of God, uh, carrying out God's word uh, in our faith as we walk by the Spirit. The Spirit broke, broke upon him mightily so that he, he tore him as a man tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. So he kills this lion with his bare hands like it's nothing. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. Did everybody notice that the woman in Philistia looked good to Samson? Because we're told now that twice, that it's about what Samson feels like. He sees her. He likes what he sees. That's good enough. What a shallow person. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. Let me ask you, is such a swarm of bees and what they produce in that dead carcass kosher in any way? right? That, this is going to be a problem. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on eating as he went. Now this is, I mean, in their culture in that day to find honey just for the taking, that's a, that's, that's a case of snicker bars or something like, yeah, that, I'll, ta- I'll have one. So of course you'd want the honey. It's, it's, it's great, but it's one of God's greatest blessings. It's the one thing we know food that won't rot. 3,000 year old honey, they say, is still edible. I know, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go for it. I mean, unless, unless there's no stickers around or something. 
When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they ate it. So he's the opposite of kosher in the sense of he's not going to eat something, uh, only the clean, and he's going to hand the unclean to his family. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. Why does the scripture say he didn't tell them that he, it says it because the point is that they wouldn't have eaten it because they're saying that's not something we Israelites are supposed to eat. That's unclean. It's been uh, cultivated in a dead body. And that's ritual separation from death and sin that God has established for Israel. And then in 10 through 14, you have this, the, the soap opera commences. Okay, well, we've already kind of started it. He looks at her. She looks at him. She looks good to him. He, he flexes, Right? Is the beach that whatever he he says he says honey uh, my dad's going to ask for your hand in marriage and she says oh 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 what a great idea whatever and and so so we're off to the races and now we're going to have the wedding feast in ten through fourteen the father went down to the woman his father went down to the woman and Samson made a feast there for the young men customarily did this and when they saw him they brought thirty companions to be with him. Then Samson said to them, let me now propound a riddle to you. See, they, they're going to have to have entertainment at the party, and so they'll use their brain. And this is interesting. Samson is a thinker. So far, not so much. But now he's thinking because he wants to be entertaining. So we'll use our brain for that. If you will indeed tell it to me within seven days of the feast, so the feast is last seven days, find out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. So that's a lot of money. That's expensive. These people don't have changes of clothes. They have one thing they wear, and then they wash, and then they maybe wear something that's sparse, and then they put the one thing on after it's dry. These are, this, is, this is very expensive because there's 30 companions, so 30 changes of clothes. But if you're unable to tell me then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, propound your riddle that we may hear it. Now, this is the one place that I can be sure of in the Bible to preach against gambling because it doesn't turn out well for Samson's wife. Don't gamble in this pas- passage. And the, the scriptures on the topic are interesting, but I would say that um, this doesn't end so well for him. But the stakes are very high. We're talking thousands of dollars in today's money. Thousands and thousands of dollars is on the table for this riddle. So if you can guess my riddle, then you get the money. If I guess the if, if you don't, if I win, then you give me the money. And they play. So now, what has to happen? Well, like with elections in the United States, you're not, win, you're not, you're not, you're not trying if you're not cheating. They've got to find a way to get the inside track because whatever happens, they can't lose. They're going to have to pay him these thousands of dollars. And he doesn't want to lose because he thinks he's got a, a solid riddle. So in verses 15 through 20, you see the marriage, which has already been consummated. There is the feast, how it is dissolved. And it's dissolved uh, in a great confl- conflagration. Then it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you uh, invited us uh, to impoverish us? Is this not so? so? So we're the pagans that will kill you if we have to pay this debt. Samson's wife wept before him and said, you only hate me and you do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not said to me, uh, said it to me, and he said to her, "Behold, I've not told it to my father or mother, so I should. So why should I tell it to you?" And I didn't read the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. That's it's, it. Rhymes in English. 
It's interesting that that rhymes in English. It's a, it's a riddle from more than 3,000 years ago, 3,500-year-old riddle. So Samson is talking about the lion that the honey grew into, the, the bees built the honeycomb in. So she weeps because he doesn't tell her the riddle. And then in verse 17, however, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted. On the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him so hard, she then told the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to her, him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? This is Rumpelstiltskin, by the way, right? Give me the riddle. Let me find it out. And then, and then we win at the end. And the person that asked the riddle loses. What is the sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found my riddle, found out my riddle. So I know where you got it because I only told one person. And so there's no way you would have guessed this. Who's going to guess a honeycomb growing or being, being uh, grown in the, the carcass of a dead lion? It's the craziest thing I've ever heard of, right? Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon, one of the cities of the Philistines, and killed 30 people, 30, 30 Philistines, and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. So, okay, I'll get you 30 clothes. We'll take care of it. Now, there's holes in it now. There's holes in the garments from whatever spears or things. They're all, they're all red and splattered with blood and brains or whatever. But um, as, the, as Samson's anger burned, he went up to his father's house. So Samson's angry now because of what his wife did. And, and he's been embarrassed and he's been betrayed by his wife. And then this is the dissolution of the marriage. Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his friend. So one of the Philistine boys is now, uh, now her husband. That's an interesting culture and a horrible wedding day, uh, wedding feast uh, season. In chapter 15, we ask the question in verses 1 through 8, who burns what? And that's the theme, is fire. What did the Philistine boys say they would do to her? They would burn her. They're already threatening to kill her. You know, Samson's wife, it's tragic. He, th- he thought she looked good. God said, don't marry her. He gets her burned alive in her father's house. And nobody thinks about this in the Philistine story of Samson because they're the bad guys. But this woman and her family are consumed by fire by the Philistines because of Samson's actions. This is why I call it the soap opera. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go into my wife in her room. But her father did not let him enter. So he's, he's got this idea. He's got this whole thing cooked up. He's going to go sneak in. It's his wife. He hasn't been back for a while. It's been a season. So he comes in. He's going to go, you know, win her over. He brought her, brought her uh, dinner. Her father said, I really thought that you hated her intensely. His anger burned at the end of chapter 14. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. We should give thanks that we live in this country, in this culture, where we honor God's image bearers called women more than apparently they did in this culture. Samson said to them, this time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do do them harm. And he went and caught 300 foxes, don't ask me how, and took torches and turned the foxes tail to tail and put one torch in the middle between the two tails. This is a very involved, long process. You think Ehud with his sword making is involved, making a two-edged sword that he straps to his right thigh so he can draw it with his left hand? I mean, that's involved. Samson has to make some sort of harness, 150 of them, to, to fix 300 foxes 
tail to tail, a pair, 150 pairs of foxes, and then a torch, and the torch has to be lit, and the foxes have to not bite him, and this is a very involved process, and I have some questions. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the stocks, uh, both the shocks and the standing grain, along with the vineyards and groves. So this is actually a really savvy military move to take out the, the breadbasket or the, the, for the, the supplies of your enemy. He attacks their supply trains and they <laughs> burned their heartland. Then the Philistines said, who did this? And they said, Samson the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. Notice the offer of the little sister. Samson doesn't, no, <laughs> that's, that's the one I wanted. So everybody's going to die. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. He struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock at Atom. So, so there's a whole action movie in what just happened that we don't have any details of it. That he does this fire trick and burns their whole grain fields down. They react, retaliate by killing his family or his, his wife, ex-wife and her father, and uh, blaming her for re- and reprising on her. So who burns what is, a, is the shock in your life. This is... This is insane. Better to put Samuel in a military program to train him up so that he learns the leadership tactics and techniques so that he can muster the army and go be the great berserker champion that God will make him in his strength. But he's not that. He's just a person. He's just a young man trying to find a girl. But that's not his mission. And he's not on mission. In verse 9 through 13, the men of Judah bring Samson bound to the Philistines. And I'll summarize this story. The Philistines in power, overlording over the Judahites, come to them and say, you bring us Samson or we're going to make it worse for you because they're, they're, they're tormentors, they're their oppressors. So the men, the elders of Judah go to the, the rock where Samson hides out and says, you have to come willingly. And he says, okay, bind me, bind me up and take me. And so that's the setup for a mighty thing, a mighty thing God does. So they said to him, no, but we will bind you fast in verse 13 and give you into their hands. Yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound Samson with two ropes, new ropes, and brought him up from the rock. So the, it's very clear that Samson's willingly submitting to the, to the binding, and it's a very strong thing they do to him. And then you have in verses 14 through 20, one of the great action sequences of the Bible, Operation Donkey Jawbone where uh, Samson kills the Philistines, and we should read it. When he came to Lehi, which means donkey, the the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. And you all know that that's the word salach, which means to break forth upon. So it's a sovereign work of God, not a willing thing from Samson. But it's God breaks forth upon him, the Spirit of God. So the, the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that's burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. He just flexes a little bit, and everything blows up. All the, all the ropes fall off. He found a fresh, not a brittle, old, rotten in the sun jawbone, a fresh jawbone of a donkey. So he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. <clears throat> when he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand and he named that place Ramoth Lehi, the high place of the donkey. 
(laughs) Then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, You've given me this great deliverance by the hand uh, of your servant. Now shall I die of thirst and and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that the water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned, and he revived, and therefore he named it El-Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. So the judge... So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. And so this is just kind of, this is the entrance into his work against the Philistines where he finally calls out to God, I need something to drink. And God gives him, God, God resupplies his soldier. He's got, he's got his berserker that he's going to use to destroy the Philistines. So he, so he, he does. And, and this puts him in power. He's now in power as the judge uh, for Israel. And, but I hope you can see he's not a willing participant. In chapter 16, which we don't have time for, you start in verses 1 through 3 with an unnamed prostitute. It's just in, in the, the, the sequence of Samuel's, or Samson's life. He does whatever he wants, and so there's a prostitute in, um, uh, in Gaza, and he uh, visits her because that's what he wants. He's just a man of his appetite and does whatever he feels like. He's just a product of his sin nature. And that's not of the Lord that he disobeys God in this way. But what happens is the Philistines find out he's there and they hide and they're going to spring a trap on him at dawn. And at midnight he gets up and he picks up the city gates. And that's the one thing that secures the town so that the raiders can't come in and kill everybody. He picks up the city gates and he carries them up the hill where where they can see them, but they can't use them. And, um, and he does it apparently uh, with the Philistines asleep because they're waiting till dawn to attack him. And the rest of chapter 16 is Samson and Delilah and the destruction of Samson's life. It ends with uh, the, the, when he brings the house down. You have four attempts from Delilah to get him to tell her what would weaken him. Delilah is another apparently prostitute that Samson falls in love with. And she begs him, just like the Philistine wife before, begged him to tell her the secret. It's the same thing that keeps happening to him. Tell me the secret. If you love me, you'll tell me the secret. Well, Samson tells her three things that aren't true about his power. And I contend the fourth time, it's not true either. He tells her the fourth time, he says, well, if you, if you um, bind me with a certain kind of rope. Nope, doesn't do it. We well, used the wrong kind of rope. Well, the second time, didn't do it. Bind my hair to the wall with a pin, then that, that's, that's the secret. It doesn't work. And then he tells her, if you use a razor on my braids, my seven braids, the, this hair that's never been cut, then I will be rendered powerless. But I don't believe that this is true uh, necessarily. I don't think it's the hair that made Samson powerful. I think it's that Yahweh broke forth upon him and empowered him to be what he was. The Lord does this with many people in the Old Testament in various ways. Saul was given the Holy Spirit to be the king that could muster the armies of Israel. And so David received the Holy Spirit. These people are not, never called Nazarites. But Samson says that if you cut my hair, um, that'll be my power. And he is almost, it's almost like sympathetic magic. Like he's got a pagan worldview that the power of Yahweh is in his hair. The power of Yahweh is in God's sovereign desire to destroy Philistines. So God, in his plan, is going to place a small tactical nuclear weapon in the temple of Dagon through this sequence of what Samson's just going to prostitutes and just lying about his power. And he's going to place this person right where he wants him to destroy, to make mass military consequences on these oppressive people. 
And that's what he does. He ends up in the temple of Dagon. Through the story, you probably all know it. And uh, my interpretation of this is that God is working every step of the way. But it's absolutely awful for Samson. As soon as she cuts his hair, she calls the Philistines and they come and, and seize him. I mean, it's, you don't even take a breath in verse, uh, what is it, 21? Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes immediately. Why is that significant in the story? Why is that thematic, that gouged out his eyes? She looks good to me. Get her for me. He says it twice about this woman. He's completely consumed with his appetites. And so the, the point at which he's going to rebel, that's the point that first is removed. They gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with um, bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison. And they bring him out to make fun of him. And uh, they put him right by the pillars that are holding the foundation up of the entire temple of Dagon. There's 3,000 Philistines there. And then it's significant. You got to hear what Samson says. Samson grasped the two. Oh, no, no. Verse, verse 28 of chapter 16. Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time. O oh God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson is supposed to be the deliverer of Israel because of the reproach of the Philistines on the people of God. But, but it doesn't work. He doesn't participate with God that way. So now he needs to have vengeance for his eyes. But God's going to get his way through Samson's exercise of his, his strength. Samson grasped the two pillars. Uh, the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right and the other with his left. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. So what a ridiculous, tragic end to, for someone that should have been the great general that, um, that was honored for generations. He bent with all his might so that the house fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. And, and you couldn't see a more clear picture, I think, than, the, than, than God having his way despite man disregarding revelation and just doing whatever occurs to him. Even in his prayers, let me die with the Philistines. What's the moral? The moral to the Samson story is that God will use us for his purposes one way or another. That's how it is. You want it the one way, not the other. We can choose to use our personal agency or volition to advance God's interests and be that willing Nazarite. Or we can choose to attempt independence from God to pursue our own objectives. These are the two options. It's the two ways. It's the two things we teach the kids, the yes button and the no button. God said, so now I say yes to what God said or I say no. And that's it. And that's the entirety of the Bible and our relationship to it. Trust and obey. We, we take what God said on faith. We say yes at that point and then we obey it. We, we act on that faith in uh, and a positive volition and a yes to what God said. The outcome of for God's interest regarding the Philistines and the children of Israel will be the same either way. He's going to take out the Philistines. God's going to use Samson to take out the Philistines. It's just, is he willingly doing it? Is he part of God's work? Or is he pursuing his own little petty thing? And that makes Samson such a tragic character. He's a proverb. He's a fool. And he's, he's someone that we're all supposed to look at and say, I don't want to be like that. And what's the comparison to you? You have the Holy Spirit. You have God's power to do what God wants you to do. You have a spiritual gift. You have the Word of God, the revelation of God, which makes all of that work. And so don't waste it. 
The outcome for Samson and us will depend on our willingness to participate in God's plan, God's way. Our Father, we thank you for the time this morning. We've been able to think through the life of Samson and the way it reflects on government. He was supposed to be the judge. He was supposed to rule your people for your sake and your, according to your word. And we see he didn't even rule his life that way. How could he rule the people? Father, we don't want to miss the, the message and its application to each one of our hearts. You've given us responsibilities, and we're supposed to take your revelation and make our decisions with them accord with what you've said. Strengthen us for it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.